All right, Helen, I was just going through your old room since you've moved, clearing out some of your stuff. Did you find anything good? Well, the best find was probably this old... I think it's a Game Boy Advance, the, the purple oh, one. Oh, you need to be careful with that. That's one of the... It's the old one, isn't it? The one without the backlight? Aye. It looks like it. I don't think there's a back... Aye. No backlight on this shit. Oh, see, that's why they put out the Game Boy SP, because, because the one with the backlight is actually a... A kind of portal to an esoteric dimension. It was getting used for evil rituals and stuff like that, so they had to release a new model with it. So I'd be careful with that one. They put out the SP as a gateway drug to the DS, man. That's just a stupid urban myth. Apparently, if you look into it and say his name five times, he's meant to appear. For fuck's sake. You know who I mean? Are you scared? I'm a fuck, is it? I don't say I didn't warn you. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Helen. And because you, Helen. And because you. Quick, quick, destroy that fucking Game Boy Advance. I can't, I can't, he's got it now. The pain, I assure you. The bees, shoot it. The bees, hell. The bees. Ah! Welcome to Dynamite Neddy. It's the retro games podcast where a couple of our pals get together and talk about a couple of old games. But tonight we're doing that with the spirits of the dead also surrounding us because it's Galotians time. It's Halloween night where that that portal to the underworld is at its most visible. It's there's spookters all over the shop here. The voice you're hearing just now is of course myself, Mick Clockerty, the blob that ate everybody. Joining me, as always, we have Night of the Living Dummy, Mr. Andy Mack. Kirichiwa, you spooky bitches. <laughs> and the headless ghost, Mr. Mick McCormick. Hello. And a very special guest this year for Galotians, Say Cheese and Die, it's Helen Clockerty. Hello. No, that worked as a double joke because I'm doing Goosebumps titles. Helen likes Goosebumps. And also, fucking hates cheese. Um, so there you go. <laughs> Do you remember, uh, not Goosebumps, but the, there was like a cheap version of them? Like a Tesco value oh, version? Shivers, or do you mean Creepers? Or do you mean Young Hippo Spooky? Cause... Aye, Andy, there was <laughs> there was 50 cheap versions of Goosebumps. And in the clock of the household, we had them all. That was Aye. a long bandwagon that folk were jumping on. Aye, but no, it was, it was, it was not the day we like, was it not meant to do with like the artwork, like the Waynes were wanting the artwork rather than the story, like they, they spent a lot of money on like, creating the aesthetic. There's the, a good Vice article where they talked to the guy that did all the Goosebumps covers, because Goosebumps covers were, you know, don't judge a book by its cover pattern, Disney apply to Goosebumps, the covers were often the best bit. Man, Aye. that slightly raised, like, drippy goo effect that was on. Aye. 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 Well, remember St Mary's used to do like, a book club thing? 
Yeah. Um, the, the, the book fair that would come in, aye? The Scholastic. Aye, that's aye, the one. That's it. You get them all. You get all the goosebumps out of that. We are going to do an obligatory sort of Galotians, Halloween, guys and whatever you want to call it, intro bump. So I come today pre-equipped with a question. And he's not what it is. I don't know why I'm... It's for the listener's benefit, I suppose. <laughs> he's, he's done prep work on this, I hope. We are going to delve into your scariest video game baddie before we get into your spooky games for this year. So I think I've said you can name an ultimate one and then you get a an honourable mention as well in case you found it really hard to narrow it down to just one. So we'll kick off. McCormick, I'm going to just pick on you. Do you fancy going first? Aye. Right, hit us with your, your honourable mention if you got one and your ultimate scary baddie for a video game. So I've got an honourable mention that's spooky and but not scary and then a real one that was scary but not spooky if that makes <laughs> sense um, so Aye. My, spookiest, my spookiest boss would be uh, Magus or Magus the Chrono Trigger this is my honourable mention mostly because I just the whole build up to it you're in a horrible spooky castle you, you do the whole game's been building up to this kind of villain, even though it's not the real final villain. But you're you're told constantly how powerful he is. He's Aye. he's seemingly taking on entire armies at once. You know he's got this incredible magic power. Funnily enough, while I was trying to work mine out, me and Helen get into a wee bit of a conference about if if you were picking a chrono trigger body because Helen's a big chrono trigger he'd would you go Lavos or would you go Magus? And I think we landed on Lavos, but I don't know, there's there's definitely something about playing through that whole castle in the lead up to him. Aye, there is a kind of, the whole double, double punch of like getting to um to Magus and the the, the kinda of lights turning on, the the candles and that and the, all the spooky vibes, but then Shortly after you encounter Lavos for the first time, and you completely wretch your shit. <laughs> like they're both pretty horrible, and terrifying experiences. But I they just for the pure scary build-up and gothic vibes of it all. For the fascism. <laughs> Is, do, you think, do you think he's a fascist? There's that bit where you see all the monsters around that statue of him, man, and I was always like, that's a bit. I like that bit where they're, but they're sort of praying to him. He's almost like a pseudo-religious figure. I thought that it was like a, a cult leader. I mean, fascism, cult leader, I don't know. He's trying to... And they go together. Anyway, I gave your spooky villain, sorry, your ultimate one. So the scariest boss fight that I can remember throughout my life would be the end from Metal Gear Solid 3. Now, the reason I say this isn't spooky is because the end is a character, the way he's presented, isn't scary at all. He's a really, really old man in a wheelchair. Um, he's like 90-something years old. I didn't know this at the time, but if you leave the game timer running for long enough, you don't have to fight him because he dies of old age, which is an amazing Kojima joke. You can go in um, on the settings in your PS2 and just set the date to a week later, and if you That's reload class. your save file, the end dies. That's brilliant, man. <laughs> yeah. That's innovative, isn't it? And he also does that weird thing with his eyes bulging out when you first see him, which is kind of goofy. But... When you fight him, it's the most fucking tense experience. On arrival, be pretty much anything in the video game. Aye. What the end is is a basically the world's greatest sniper, and he he's basically like one with nature, camouflage and stuff like that. He survives in the wilderness. 
you can't see him. So you're running about fighting a boss that you you can't see. You can you can only catch really small glimpses of him, and he's just shooting you out of nowhere with a sniper rifle. And you've got to just be really clever in terms of hiding. It's like fucking enemy at the gates or something. You know that pure tense sniper. Aye, joke. sniper it's versus like, sniper. You've got. Aye. You've got three or four large areas that the boss fight takes place across as well, and he will constantly change his position. He uses a parrot as a spotter. I mean, I don't know if I would consider it one of my scariest, but to this day, top five boss fights in general, just how fucking good it is to play. It takes you fucking ages as well. Like, you, you save in the middle of it and come back to it because he, he takes ages to find and take out, do you know what I mean? I just like trying your best to like spot him, spot his wee pretty parrot and stuff like that. There's a, so open ended as well. There's like, a million ways you can get to him. You can leave out like your expired rations, and then he just wait out until he needs to eat, and then he comes and eats, and he gets sick. Just crazy shit like that as well. But I just the, the tension of being in this massive area, and not knowing where he's going to shoot you, and it's what makes him the scariest boss for me. I love Metal Gear Solid Three. So um, class. <laughs> need to play it again. Right. Helen, do you want to come in with yours? Um, yeah, I can. I mean, I feel like I'm not as, as seasoned in the horror games or games kind of spectrum of these, but I do have an honourable mention to kick off uh, from when I was a Wayne primarily and then I came back to the remake, which is Lisa Trevor from Resi 1. Oh, that's a good one. For some reason, of the Resi like, creatures, she's the one that sticks out in my mind the most as being the scariest. Mm. And then when I revisited the remake as an adult to play it, there was something about the way that you kill her, because she is basically an unkillable monster, right? Pure patient, zero, well, not really, but like, tested on so much. And then the only way to offer is to make her commit suicide, which is pretty fucking metal. It's, it, it's also <laughs> like... It's like deeply fucking troubling to play at quite a young age as well. Do you know what I mean? The implications of like what happened to her. It's a very dark, tragic backstory. Couple that with like suicide and stuff. It's no the type of thing you should be playing at ten years old. But I, I dare <laughs> say a, a fair few people did. But I no, that's a good gym, man. Our parents. Most of our parents, Andy's not included, were pretty savvy about what was going on in films, like scary films, and not allowing kids to rent certain films. But with video games, they had no idea what we were playing. Aye. Aye, it's pretty spooky. She's all, um... Aye, she looks bogging, man. I do have several memories of my my more mature older siblings sending me out of the room when scary things were going to pop off in video games. (laughs) Uh, That's responsible of them. That was very responsible, aye. (laughs) But, But also... That's just you fucking like exercising some power. Do you know what I mean? You're no concerned for fucking <laughs> well-being. You just want to be a dick and be like, ah, oh, you're not allowed this. I'm allowed this. <laughs> and then, and it doesn't work anyway because even at times where I would have been like older and no doing that and genuinely like, right, let's let's not let Helen watch a Clockwork Orange because she's eight years old or whatever. Tell her now that makes her sneak into your room and get the DVD. That's a true story. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I digress, I digress. Um, My my number one scariest pick actually definitely does show my age. I'm going to go into the age of internet horror and pick Slenderman, the eight pages. 
this this is good because you can school us a wee bit on this because I mean speaking for myself, I don't know about yourselves, McCormick and Andy. I don't know anything about this. Not really. I've seen Slenderman, but I don't know anything about him. I know is he kind of from the age of like copy pastas. I so initially start what started as part of like a competition thread on like 4chan or something to basically create a sort of internet cryptid, urban legend, whatever. From that came Slenderman, blew up, blew up on Reddit, creepypastas, whatever. And then for for my money, I think I was about fourteen when this was huge. There was the Aye. indie game put up called Slender, the Eight Pages, which is basically pitch black game. You go about a forest, you have to collect eight pages with a flashlight, and there's this pure like mad menacing music. You can see fuck all, and the whole time there's a glitch effect. So basically, whenever he gets close, glitch effect goes off. And yeah, you'll just see him like jump scare behind you. It's basically like playing a very like simple game, but like a horror movie, like a Blair Witch game or something. Do you know? Aye. Does he does he have any of that? Like I don't know, like a Five Nights at Freddy's or a Weeping Angel, where if you shine a torch on him, he stops moving. Like how do you get away from him? That is exactly it, man. If you Aye. put the light on him, then he can't. But you know if you've seen him you're basically already bust because as soon as you start running like that's you your torch battery is like a finite resource i i think this was a specialty for me and my pals at sleepovers we would have all the lights out we'd pass around this fucking shit laptop that did not have a very good light on it either and we'd try and get as many pages as we could one after the other and not to be stereotypical but it was a room full of lassies on like four bottles of caribbean twists so there was a lot of screaming <laughs> <laughs> did you ever get all eight pages oh, i think we we kept batching it before we we finished the game so too much caribbean twist man not this <laughs> <laughs> mr MacArthur. Do you want to go next? Or, do you know what? We'll save you for the end. You can be our showstopper here, right? I'll go next. I've got an honourable mention, which is the Alien Queen for Alien Trilogy. So, you're talking... This is 90s, it's not a thing. See, I went back and I was watching footage of this earlier just to kind of relive it somewhat and it's got a pure like soundtrack like white boot or something it's this weird kind of pure 90s dance music <laughs> so you, you've got this 90s dance music like throbbing you're tooled up with like your flamethrower your pulse rifle and you need to go about this big area destroying the queen's eggs killing hunters or face huggers and then she will detach from like a giant kind of egg sack thing and just come at you and She's just a fucking well-designed, scary-looking big thing, man. I, I found the game properly like, atmospheric, captivating when I was a wee guy. The music is meant to represent the fact that your colonial marine is canonically on ecstasy when he's fighting. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it even more unsettling. It definitely feels like it. Well, you're playing as Ripley in Alien Trilogy. It's it's loosely based on the films, but kind of it's really just based on aliens. But I I always I always just disc- oh hello Smudge. Well, I shouldn't put me talking to the rabbit and because <laughs> <laughs> Helen said hi. Uh, Helen says hello, wee man. <laughs> I I used to always use a level skip to skip ahead to the alien queen uh, and freak myself out. That's my honourable mention. She sounds boggin. Very feminist pick. Getting some woman in horror in here. Well, but I, uh, this is also because I like genocide and monarchy. So I, I, if you like killing the queen, is it really feminist? Yes. 
I'm going a wee bit basic bro here for my my main spookiest, scariest villain. I'm going for uh, Nemesis for Resident Evil Three. Nice. I am a I'm a huge Resident Evil Three fan. I don't really fuck about with the remakes, so I'm I'm purely talking about the original. I'm always a big fan of that thing where your villain is a through line through the entire game. You know, like uh, Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII or um, John Arrhenicus, Baldur's Gate Two. So this time with Nemesis, we have that in a survival horror setting. You've got this super-powerful bio-weapon created by the Umbrella Corporation with the express purpose of killing all the stars, cops, whatever they are, some special police battalion. Nemesis, the design of him, I think he's really well-designed. I don't think he looks too over-the-top. I think sometimes with horror, there's a drive to make them gruesome, but sometimes it's like putting a hat on a hat. They, they look over-designed, and you kind of lose something in it. So I like that big stitched-together face. I like the rocket launcher arm. He's got a clean design. He's got a good design. I like all that. No, the genius around Nemesis is that you fight him throughout the game. There are these scripted set pieces where he'll appear, and you have to make this decision. Fight him or flee. It's a fight-or-flight thing. But on top of this, he can actually randomly appear in most areas of the game as well. So even if you're a seasoned veteran like me, who played shitloads of this on Night Shift, you're never quite sure if he's going to appear. So you get your roots planned out, you're doing well, you're conserving your ammo and your herbs, you're backtracking for a puzzle or something, but you can never quite feel secure. Um, I don't scare that easily, but that wee bit of anticipation for me, if I go back and I play Resident Evil 3, is just special, and I still love it. So there you go, that's my pick. Is there a particular fight against him that sticks out in your head, or is it just the notion that he could be there at any time? So, you've got a couple of crackers, yeah. The the weakest fight against him, in my opinion, is the final one, where you have to push these blocks into a giant chain gun, and then lead, like, a kind of massive goo which Nemesis has like mutated into throughout the course of the game and the the road of it so that it kills him. I like the fight against him when you are in a lab and you can actually cheese it by shooting these pipes that drip acid all over him. Um, But mainly it's no the set piece boss fights against Nemesis, it is the fact that he can just appear and ruin your life. And is this like, am I right in saying that this was like an innovative thing for the game? Because it wasn't really a mechanic that appeared in games before that an enemy could follow you from screen to screen. I think that is the case. I would I would hesitate to say, yes, this was definitely the first. But by the time I played it even, it wasn't something that I had encountered before. So Nemesis being able to go through doors even, <laughs> I, I, I don't think they could do that in Resi 2. Having opposable thumbs even, <laughs> Yeah, basically, <laughs> um, he, he, he really, you know, it's like when they put a jetpack on the Dalek so that they could go up the stairs, <laughs> that what the fuck moment. Mr. MacArthur, please, give your honourable mention if you've got one, and also your scariest baddie. 
I've got two honourable mentions. One I'm going to get away dead quick. Oh, um, two is it? Aye. Just uh, this, this new um, <laughs> this new YouTuber ad blocker is my ultimate one. Um, it, it keeps cutting off videos after three shots if you've got an ad blocker on. It's really destroying my life, you know. I don't know why I've been targeted, but adverts are a fucking killer. I um, that. That's that one out the way. Um, secondly, I was going to make this my number one, but I've, I've decided against it, so I've picked the Crohn's Witches, uh, Witcher 3. I don't know if anybody's ever played that, but basically there's a... I'm yet to get into the Witcher, but, but paint a picture for me. Right, so there's a whole section of Witcher 3, right? Um, which is a, a massive, sprawling kind of Skyrim-type game, action, uh, so action RPG, and uh-huh. one of the one of the quests in it takes place in this wee village, and this wee village is it operates like a cult. There's a an elder who has no eyes and sporadically speaks um, and claims that she's channeling the spirits of three witches, um, and she sort of dishes out. Um, the orders of the day, a tune, um, to carry out um, certain things like harvest and all that to keep the wee tune going essentially. So what you've got is you've got three witches that run this tune through this old woman, but you never know if the witches actually exist or not. And you go about the tune, and you get to learn about the locals, and they're all terrified of these three witches for whatever reason. There's stories about Wayne's been boiled alive and just turning up like. Uh, cooked pork the next day, people's ears getting sawed off and they're sleeping on that and like young people getting turned into like, old hags and things like that overnight and there's just this real foreboding sense that anything can happen at any time. So they keep this like old woman enshrined and encased in like pure like, luxury. Any any listener that's playing Witcher 3 or wants to play Witcher 3 or whatever, press the wee button in your podcast, skip ahead like two minutes or something. Uh, Andy, I want to know are the crones real? Well, then they don't know. It leaves it open to interpretation. Um, oh, right, okay. C- certain things happen. Supernatural things. And there is a plot that you... I, w- I, had, I went down the line where um, they, you keep them as antagonists. Aye. But you can go down the line of where they become friendly. And I think as you go down the friendly route, they, they appear. But if you go down the antagonist route, they stay open to interpretation. So you don't know if this wee woman... It's just talking shite. She's inspired by Baba Vanga, who was a a prophet in the Soviet Union, who was heavily, um, I heavily publicised by the Soviet government for some weird reason. Um, as a sort of psyop claiming that she could see the future. Was she like that mad Bulgarian mystic woman? I think that's off. That's off. Yep, she was Slavic guy. I don't know what country, but she was heavily uh, publicised by... Sounds a wee bit Khrushchev-y, right? I the mean, the I mean, Soviet she, Union, aye. She really should have been put into a forced labour camp. But anyway... Uh, um, so why? <laughs> what's, um, what's your number one? Number um, one, I've, I've played it safe, man. I've played it absolutely safe. Okay. Well, be no surprise here that I've picked Don Yu for Shenmue 2. Oh, right. yes! Right. Everybody... Now, Listeners, Mark Shenmue off your bingo card. He's got it. He's got it into the Halloween episode. So Shenmue too, right? Um, you, you're cutting about for the first half of the game, just getting to know your bearings. Then you meet Ren, who is the leader of the gang. Essentially, not a Gary Glitterway, but and uh, he's a leader of uh, a gang in Kowloon, Walled City, in Hong Kong. And he sort of like Nemesis get, uh, gets chased about by us 
very hard man about <laughs> <laughs> Hong Kong um, called Don Yu. What's the what's the scariest thing you can think of? Right, probably a really big Chinese man. Well, he's completely. He's, the thing about him, he's completely bald, brown eyes. He's got a wart on his forehead. He's got a big gold chain necklace, kind of dark turquoise jacket, um, yellow and black on it, and I blah blah. He's got a Chinese demon that on it, and um, he wears a karate belt, dark turquoise pants, and brown Chinese sandals. Kind of looks as if he's cutting about in his pajamas, to be honest. But he's a big brute, right? Um, I often cite, um, see Dim out of Clockwork Orange? Yes. An absolute doofus, right? But he's fucking solid to the point where he can splatter your brains in one hit. Yes. And the, way, the reason why he's so scary is he's got a lot of parallels with Nemesis. There's parts where he'll just appear out of nowhere. So you're like sitting in, I think you've got to go to his house at one point and like find clues. And then the next Aye. minute, just unannounced, they just kick the door in, man. And you're hiding in the cupboard and he's fucking looking to just smash some cunt up. Um, unannounced if it's in his house. Well, <laughs> uh, I suppose not. I, that's hey, like, you're there unannounced. <laughs> that's uh, like he, one example. Um, Don, Don, Don Nui is also always scripted, I think. I don't think you can encounter him walking the streets. No. I think Resident Evil 3 would be a very different experience if he was a large Chinese man in his pajamas. <laughs> Aye. I but, don't know, uh, but I'd, I'd play that mod. <laughs> Ren, Ren, uh, Ren, who is the leader of the the gang in Kowloon World City, called the it's not the Mad Angels. Who is it again? Well, is he? They call him. He he's called Ren of Heavens. Ren of the Heavens. That's it. The Heavens. Yeah, um, well, he's just constantly getting chased about. Off um, Don Yu, because Don Yu wants to run Hong Kong for himself. He says he wants to eat. Every fish that's caught in the local river, not. And... The, the thing about them is that they hype them up as basically being an immovable force. You, I think you get into a fight with them midpoint to late game, and you punch them, and it doesn't do anything. Like you land a full force punch, it doesn't Aye. even move. So it's it's building but... up to the confrontation of how do you deal with this guy who seemingly is like indestructible. Aye, and he's also, um, one of the worst bits about Don Yu is that his partner thinks that he or she, depending on which version of the game you play, has free reign, has free reign of the tune. So they walk about the tune like, oh, what's this? Oh, solid gold fucking stopwatch, aye? Oh, is this going right back in your family dynasty, aye? Well, that'll become me because I'm going with fucking Don Yu. I think Don Yu's partner is a scarier character. The knife obsessed neat freak, ah, but um, also harder to talk about just due to with some very strange like version differences. I think for the Western one, they wanted to censor out references to Don Nui being gay, so they changed that character into a woman, but. It, Kinda doesn't make sense, but in, but it's a I a bit of a minefield to get into. Ah, uh, they did the Sailor Moon cousins thing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but to, just to break it down and make it nice and PC, um, an English version Don you just refers to as his cute little love thing. Aye. Um, <laughs> but um, aye, she, she as you said loves or he loves knives, um, which is creepy in itself. Also, a little known bit is that Don Yu and Wan visit this plate guy. It's a guy that sells plates in a yellow head building, which is a big building in, in Shemu too. 
and uh, they go to this thing where a few kind of select few people go to this night where they look at plates and there's one line of dialogue where they all talk about like uh, Don you uh, no the owner of the plate shop would rather like make love to a plate than a human you know it's, it's creepy man so I, I just this uh, character just used to haunt my dreams he's also um, acted very well his voice acting's very good um, scary Aye. and all encompassing when you hear it and it really creates a sense of fear and panic and mad dashing away you just want to run away essentially when it comes and it makes the QTEs good the quick time events good as well because you feel like oh fuck 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 and if you get caught you know you're going to get smashed about so I do like them I do on like the, them on the subject of being a plate fucker um, <laughs> what what was your favourite plate when you were away in Helen did you I remember Cindy vaguely plate. you having this this Sunday <laughs> plate that you ate off for fucking all the time <laughs> I, it was a Sunday play, and then Mott and Dad didn't want me eating it off, off it anymore, and they started putting like, ham slices for that weird like, fucked up dug outside on it. I think Aaron had a Buzz Lightyear play. Um, I don't know if there was a particular play I was enamoured with. There was a Mr. Blobby Egg Cup that we there had in was. the house. I ca- I coveted that. Um, Andy like, McCormick, did you have a special no, plate? Just I didn't have a favourite uh, no, plate. There's only so many types of autism that one man can have. <laughs> 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 this is a totally alien concept to me too, like having a favourite plate. I do remember getting a, a Ricicles bowl you could send away for it. Andy, I had the fucking Rick Ricicle bowl as well. I collected cereal tops or whatever to get that. No, that's a cracker shout. I, I, that was my favourite bowl. Oh, I've got some bad news for you, Mick, because I started to use that bowl as a hair dye bowl, I think. Oh, so it's all no. stained green and stuff. I'm so sorry. That's a fucking antique as well, man. <laughs> Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David Dickinson, man. That can't say no deal. Fuck. Aye. No, Andy, don't start getting into how much the plates and bowls cost, right? <laughs> right. Um, as okay. McCormick said, there's only one, oh, so many types of autism one person can have. I'll not bother. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame I can't make that the, op- the episode title. It's a, it's a wee bit near the knuckle. Um, I, like, right. I like how you stopped Andy's shame you two derailment with an even more powerful derailment. I'm going to be honest. I want, while Helen's here, I wanted to get some part about the Cindy play in because it all just came flooding back to me. Mr. MacArthur, why don't you kick things off and tell us why you picked Evil Dead, Hail to the King, for myself? I um I was a big kind of Evil Dead fan back in the day. I liked the first one, I liked the third one in particular. I know you're a big fan of the second one. But there wasn't many Evil Dead games in the 16-bit era. And um, I thought it was a big novelty when one finally came out. I had the Dreamcast version there. And I just remember sitting thinking, this is pretty cool. Um, it's like Resident Evil, but, but I had 3D backgrounds and stuff. And you got to go Ash, which was a big thing. I loved Ash. I love uh, Bruce Campbell, I think he's fucking brilliant, he's funny as fuck. Can't act worth a shit, but he's brilliant, so... I thought, eh, uh, my hey, fuck it, it's Halloween. Hey, Bruce is a good character actor, come on. Ah, he's good, I like him, oh, listen, I love him. Right, Um. so, I thought, it's Halloween, let's get some evil deed, let's get a dead eggs on. So, yeah, that's why. Andy, you're right in saying that uh, evil dead games prior to Hail to the King were very thin on the ground. There actually was one in the microcomputer era, ah, right, which okay. I think came out 
before Evil Dead 2. It's a very simple sort of screen clear game where you have to shut all the windies and doors in a house and kill some deadites. Uh, well, no, not not quite that bad. It's it's merely a game than that. Um, but yeah, you had that, and I mean, for my money, the best adaptation of Evil Dead in game form, which isn't officially an adaptation yet, we will be getting a lot later in the episode, um, in that Splatterhouse. This year, Hail to the King, right? So, I have ended up looking at a few reviews of this and stuff. I've heard the plot of this game getting slated a bit for being lazy, and it's sort of lazy, but I don't think that's the biggest problem with the game. So, you kick things off, you get a nice um, intro cutscene, big points for having Bruce Campbell himself doing the fucking voiceover. He gives us a kind of run... He gives us a kind of run-through of the events of Evil Deed 2, and Army of Darkness and sort of comes up with a convoluted reason why him and his new girlfriend go back to the cabin. Terrible idea. Yes, it's, it makes no sense why you would go back there. But um, Ash has been having nightmares, so they go back to the cabin to try and make the nightmare stop, which somebody should tell them that's not how PTSD works. <laughs> she watching too many episodes of Jerry Springer. <laughs> yeah, probably. The return to the cabin, Ash's severed hand for the second film pops up and it runs onto the table and presses the tape recorder. So the the doctor's words get read out once again, that evil spell, and then the, the evil flies in again from the forest. You get that camera angle and everything kicks off again. Deadites kidnap Ash's new missus. Uh, the evil version of Ash comes out through the mirror and knocks you out, and then you kick off the game. Um, you start off by reading a note file, which I'm a big fan of from Resi. Not the only thing they took for Resi. Uh, we will get into that a wee bit. But um, the notes basically tell you that you have to go around and find the missing pages of the Necronomicon, which have been scattered across the forest and the cabin and the surrounding area. Which I find a wee bit weak as a, I don't know, a drive to gameplay. But I kind of love crafting like Banjo-Kazooie. But I guess it kind of <laughs> works. And I mean, something to... the Slenderman game is exactly this game. Finding pages in a forest with nothing <laughs> else to it. So you bet it there. Aye. The, the game has a decent sense of humour to go along with your kind of Evil Dead games. It doesn't take it too... Evil Dead movies, sorry. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Um... Notably, there is a button, uh, if you press triangle on the PlayStation, it will make Ash say one-liners like, come get some, and groovy. Um, I enjoyed that button, it's probably the best thing in the game. Uh, <laughs> so some, some of the item descriptions are quite funny as well, and you just find funny things, like there's a ham sandwich in the fridge at the start, you can get as an extra an extra healing item. Did you fight your big daddy long legs? Well... Now let's get into this. The I'm sorry, this game's a bit of a snider. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's generic as fuck. Nothing about this game makes me feel like I am Ash doing battle with the Deadites, returning to this kind of world that you try to put behind them. You've you've got a Resi clone, right? Which for me 
familiar territory, safe territory. I very much enjoyed a lot of games that ripped off Resident Evil. You've got fixed camera angles, you've got pre-rendered backgrounds, you've got some light puzzles with picking up items and using them in the correct place. For some reason I've got a Mandela effect, because I've always thought in my mind that this was 3D backgrounds like Code Veronica, but no, no. no. You have got, I mean this is, this is with the bit where I found nice things to say about this game comes later, but you have got beautiful pre-rendered backgrounds in this one. Um, that's one of the things I would say that's that's really up there in terms of what this has got going for it. The the backgrounds are really nice. It's not 3D. Yeah, I know they, have, they have almost this kind of painted effect to them. The biggest problem with this game is it's the baddies. You've got deadites, and they all kind of look the part, right? They look really good. I like how they look in this game. The deadites smashing. They're just cannon fodder. They are right. Okay, you're running through an area and a deadite pops up, then typically you will either attack them with your chainsaw, Ash has got the chainsaw arm, you couldn't do the game without the chainsaw arm, you need to conserve fuel for that, there's a survival horror element to it, so either you'll chop at it with a chainsaw, or your axe, or your gun, everything takes shitloads of hits to kill, and then they either drop health or ammo, and then when you run back through the area again, they just respawn, so a lot of the game has you standing stationary hitting the button over and over and over again kill the thing pick up the health or ammo move on it gets repetitive very very quickly i think for me the enemies could have used a wee bit more to them you could do without making them respawn and making them a wee bit harder or something i don't know i've, I've got a wee bit of that in my my conclusion as well but yeah, that's that's where the crux of how I caught can be fucked itis with this game lies. Did you encounter the, the bug where you can make it's quite funny. Um obviously there's like skeletons that fight you in this game. You can actually make it so you are chasing a skeleton that's running away and it's just it's funny watching a skeleton let but it's yeah, they, run away they, for you. The enemies run away for you quite often when they're <laughs> on low health, um which is another annoying thing. But um, it's good to see him skeletons on a retreat because one of the big things in, in computer game history, obviously you know, it's a pet hate of mine, is fucking skeletons, especially ones with deep shots. So to see him on a retreat, like Port Glasgow Junior supporters, is fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's, it's, it's nice getting it back to them a wee bit, but um, I never found that triumphant. I thought, alright, I've got to come to you now to get this <laughs> health up. I mean, in the movies, the best thing about the Deadites are that they are pure bammy bastards, right? And I would imagine that's hard to translate to a video game. I think, right, so let's get into my my final bit here, right? My biggest problem with this game is that I think it has to, to use a, a wee bit of an American expression, it needed to pick a lane. The combat in this Disney work for survival horror the enemies are not threatening or interesting enough and there needs to be less of them and more about inventory management. No. If you wanted to make this an action game, a third-person action game, centred around killing deadites with loads of weapons and melee weapons and craziness, which I believe they did that in the next console generation, the game's a wee bit better, that's definitely an, op- an angle to go for. Instead of having this middle of the road, a survival horror, but with loads of shite combat in it, 
it just did nothing for me. It either needed to be more of a an action fighting game or a survival horror game. It doesn't really do either of those things very well. I um, I mean, right. Now, looking at it through the eyes of a 20, 23 gamer, um, man of the world, uh, well-travelled, uh, whatever, it's fucking rubbish looking, right? It's, um, it is a resi clone, and you can only take that so far, I suppose, especially if it's not designed very well. And I suppose looking back on it, you know, it's one of them cases where the novelty sort of outweighs um, the actual some of the parts of the game. For me, having um, even the cover was like Ash holding the fucking his iconic um, chainsaw that he screws on his severed arm, um, holding that above his head. I'm going to fucking kill everything with sort of cabin in the background, the creepy house of the dead, kind of writing on the front. It came as a full package for me. I just found that up here buzz being able to run about his ash. I guess um, in terms of being um, sort of objective, um, I I can see what you mean, man. I don't blame you because. Happens a lot, doesn't it? Uh, Andy, I can see where you're coming from. Again, I'm a big fan of Evil Deed 2, particularly. Army of Darkness, also great fun. But um, if I'd have come across this game when I was like 11, 12, I would probably be looking at this with nostalgia goggles on. I would know how to play it a wee bit better, get quite far into it. I'd probably find more nice things to say about it. But coming at it as a 34-year-old man... It's a chore. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to play any more of this. It's, I, so it's, been, it's been done better. Um, there was a game that came out after it called Evil Dead. Oh, my fist full of boomstick. That's what it's called. Aye. And that game's fucking brilliant. I'm starting yes. to think I should have gave you that one, but it was only PS2. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't too sure that your capabilities to play PS2 games. But fist full of boomstick is a arcade uh, kind of action hack and slash game. A bit like... Um, it's called Dynasty Warriors or um, Lord of the Rings games, two towers. I mean, I do you know, sell a game in one sentence, Dynasty Warriors, but it's Army of Darkness, Bruce Campbell <laughs> in the medieval time fighting a deadite army. Fucking give me that all day long. Aye. This didn't really work for me, and unfortunately it's no a recommendation. It doesn't, it doesn't feel enough like I'm getting good fan service for Evil Deed. And it's just a bit of a chore to play. Um, I'm sorry, but I get it. I get it, man. Didn't have a great time with it, man. No, no, you're all right there. And it's going to happen again. It's happened before, man. I can't think of particulars, but it's we in my head, man. I, I, I mad we head where I go. Oh, it was fucking amazing, man. But then I revisit it and I go, was it? But Teletext, right? Teletext, <laughs> case in point. I remember watching um, a, a Celtic game on Teletext. Um, right. And it was like a UEFA Cup, and uh, maybe in Barcelona or something, and it was riveting. But all you were watching was fucking like words on a screen, just waiting for them to change. But that was great in my eyes. But no. To go back see. to the tagline of this episode, I mean that's there is only so many types of autism a man can have. Exactly. There you go, I. <laughs> But it's this kind of, like, I don't know if, like, obviously using it in philosophy, it's like solipsism, solipsism, where you think, oh, this stuff is fucking great. What you don't understand is that there's a thing called objectivity, and um, if you go back and look at something, you know, the, the ideas you've made up about it, eight, nine times out of ten, it's just you romanticising shit, nostalgia. Well, I mean, that's that's part of the podcast, I suppose, does, does nostalgia 
way up to objectivity and usually I can find myself being more diplomatic and a wee bit kinder and I don't know if it's just the mood I've been in the last wee while but I, I couldn't I couldn't find much nice to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, okay, we'll meet we'll, we'll we'll meet at that point and we'll um agree to agree because uh, that's just gonna happen all the time. Our games are our games and I mean look at fucking Royal Rovers. We went too far back here, I reckon. And it's it's just everything in it has just been done so much better since then. For my money, if I want Ash Williams in a video game, I'm going to settle for not having Bruce Campbell, I'm going to play Poker Night at the Inventory too, and I'm going to be done with it. <laughs> oh, is it no Bruce Campbell in that? No, no, it's another guy doing the Ash voice, but he's pretty good at it. He's got the attitude down. That is the best Evil Dead video game, in fairness. Oh, wait, yeah. no, Splat- Splatterhouse 2, Splatterhouse 2. <laughs> Fucking brilliant films, but man. Oh, what a laugh. That is I- superb. I rewatched Evil Dead 2 the other night and just the... Do you know how they, they they say that comedy and horror are actually very closely interlinked in terms of the response it creates in your own body? And I think in Evil Dead 2, it's possibly the closest they've ever been to <laughs> almost being like the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. Like black comedy. Um, it's perfect. Sort of, Aye, it's a cracker. Um, Anyway, well, that gets that that one out of the road. So, (laughs) unfortunate again, I think think, uh, Mr Ashley Williams might be finding his way to Christmas dinner. um, (laughs) (laughs) He's in good company, man. Well, I'm fine, I can't put Roy on a plate, can I? No, you can't, you pick that yourself. We will get on to our next game, uh, which is... Mr. McCormick, why did you pick Decap Attack for Andy Mack? Right, so this is as spooky as you can get, right? We've got all your kind of classic sort of horror characters, heedless heedless mummies, skulls, all that sort of thing. Um, apart from that, I picked this game for um, two interesting reasons. One is that there was a long-running uh, comic strip in Sonic the Comic, the British one, about this game, Decap Attack. Despite the fact that it wasn't a very popular game, it was an incredibly popular comic strip, um, which we can maybe get into later. And also, I I thought it was quite interesting that this is one of these games like Mario 2, which was a completely different game in Japan um, that was kind of retooled for a Western audience. And the retooling took the form of, um, let's just make it really spooky, which I thought was um, an unusual choice to say the least. But it's quite a cool wee Mega Drive platformer, which I know Andy loves. So, um, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed it. Aye. Um, I'm going to make a confession, right? There's not many Mega Drive platformers I've not played. I used to have a wee, um, before the Mega Drive Mini came out, the Sega one, which is a fucking splendid piece of hardware, by the way. I had um, one made by a Chinese company called At Games. I think we spoke about it before in the podcast. So the the intro for the, these Halloween specials comes from the At Games... Um, the ad game's mega because it is emulation is so bad that it can't really do sound properly True. and everything sounds out of tune. So <laughs> I sampled the, the out of tune version of Carnival Night Zone, which is super creepy. That's fucking I mate, that is I don't think I could love you anymore, but I, I fucking honestly <laughs> that thing type of thinking is why I love you. 
Andy, that, that has been on an episode before. That's one of my favourite pieces of Neddy trivia of all time. <laughs> it's fucking class. But aye, anyways, cut a long story short, the decap attack was on it. And I always thought it was a quirky wee motherfucking game. I'd, I really enjoyed playing it. But I left it for ages and I've only just went back to it for, for this episode. Now, um, this is an interesting game. I, I want to talk a bit about what the game actually is. Now, you remember we spoke about Contra um, and Castlevania being regionalised? Like, um, Contra couldn't be released in European markets for whatever reason because it was too bloody or too violent. This is thanks to fucking Germany. Thanks a lot, Helen. Man, I played German House of the Dead. I've had to see that green blood. It's not as fun. It's not as Green blood, aye. Green blood, aye. Aye. Mortal Kombat 2, famous case in point. Um, no blood. Germany got a bit too excited in the 1930s and 40s and then sort of overcorrected um, by thinking the reason that this is never going to happen again is because we are not going to have any violence in video games from here on out. Kind, so- violent video games. <laughs> you've got you've got all these games where it's like Reagan era marines killing like militias in the third world and then when they came to Europe it was robots aye and that's because of germany probotector aye but um this is sort of this is the same ballpark but not quite the same sentiment this was kind of the opposite aye it's um this this game decap attack was originally known as magical hat no batupi turbo daibuken so you can see why it was it was changed them um, no the most famous example of something like this happening is uh, mario 2 where the japanese mario 2 was a fucking solid game. I think it was called The Lost Levels. It was eventually released as in Mario All-Stars. But it was like Mario 1, only um, it was like a Dyson version of it, where it was fucking solid levels. No, Andy, that's... You, you, I think you mean Kaizo. Kaizo. Um, and no, <laughs> I know. I know Celtic forward Dyson Maeda is solid. <laughs> and he's, he's more solid than a Kaizo game. Kaizo. But, um, I can see the mistake you've made there. Yes, all right, okay, Kaizo, not Dyson Maeda. So, aye, this game was um, based on a Japanese uh, manga or anime um, which had characters such as a leaping egg, a sort of bug thing with two big fucking eyes coming out of a robotic mech, um, a guy who looked like a Middle Eastern sultan and something that I can't decipher. So you can see it was a very Japanese thing related to their otaku culture. That I perhaps think it was based on an anime. On an anime. Well... Remember the 90s? It was still called Japanimation. It was very niche. That whole kind of Japanese geek culture otaku hadn't quite made it to the West yet. So they played it safe and said, right, let's make a horror game with it. Let's take this game, which has quite interesting ideas, and let's make a horror game about it. But one of the things about that um, that might be derogatory or negative is that the characters are kind of slapped together. You've got a guy that looks like Daffy Duck, um, who's meant to be evil. You've got, like, Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. It's just a pure direct rip. But, I mean, they are charming in their own way, but it's kind of, the characters are kind of, like, cookie-cutter. But um, the main change is, the, the main character is not this week in an anime guy anymore. You are now a guy called Chuck D. Head, which is a pun for Chuck the Head, I suppose. You it's kind of like, a, he's like a mummified sort of corpse, but... And he's got sort of eyes sticking out his chest, but he also occasionally can ha- pick up a disembodied head and put it on top of his head. 
and throw it about as a weapon. That's right, it's a power-up. I, I didn't, so, I didn't realise that was a pun, man. I've got pages and pages of notes here about public enemy, but I go <laughs> right in the fucking bin. So, Chuck D. Head's a headless mummy, um, created by a mad scientist. Now, mad scientist, most original name in the world, Dr. Frank N. Stein. Right? Don't know how they get away with that one. He's a wee, he's wee manky assistant, Igor, who looks like Frankenstein's monster, sent to defeat a guy called Max Decap. So you can see that they never spent much time like, creating these names, I don't think. And Max Decap's a demon who sort of conquered the world, which is shaped like a skeleton for some reason, and sort of split all the clusters of bones in a skeleton. So yeah, unlike the, the game that you were talking about that became Mario 2, where they basically just like replaced a couple of sprites with Mario characters and then the, the entire game was pretty much unchanged. In this one, it's got the same gameplay as this Japanese game about the magic cat and the egg True. and whatever, but they've kind of overhauled everything else. Like They've created these new characters, they've got this whole kind of Universal Monsters kind of theme to it, all the levels are different. Um, or the the music is different as well. The music's a lot Aye. more kind of hardcore, he- um, heavy rock stuff. But it's just weird that they, they kind of went to all that effort and didn't Aye. just make a, an original game. The, the original game, um, the, the, well, the game that's based on is Magical Hat, No Boo, Toby, Turbo, Die Booking. That's a very like, cutesy game. It looks a bit like the Wonder Boy games, where it's all bright, uh, blue skies, popping reds. Well, it's kind of like Dragon Ball Z a wee bit, kind of, uh, what you call that, the genre anime that's just dead bright. What? Shonen. Shonen, aye. Shonen Jump. That's what you've got here. Um, but, as you said, uh, when they changed it to Decap Attack, they've made everything kind of dark, everything's grey, kind of that ghouls and ghosts kind of vibe to it a wee bit. Where everything's it's all very dingy and a bit samey, to be honest, from one level to the next. Well, I, I, this, this is the thing, um, the, the levels, right, when, when I started it, I'll, t- I'll talk about a bit why I liked it at first, right, um, I do love my Mega Drive platformers, this game came out before Sonic the Hedgehog, right, which is the quintessential um, Mega Drive platformer, and what I noticed right away was, this game's uh, movement is based on momentum, so this is a precursor to Yuji Naka's Sonic the Hedgehog engine, whereby you... Don't just go at a constant speed. There's a counter or something in the code that sort of increases your speed as you move. And even when you jump and land, you're still um, moving at a sort of, kind of variable speed. I thought that was pretty cool, because that's, I mean, that's something that um, Sonic claims to have pioneered. I don't know about that, because Decap Attack doesn't come as that movement. Also, I like the wee attack. I think it's heavy bogging for a Halloween game. Um, you're a mummy, and your head's all un... Like, inside bandages and it sort of comes out like you know how they say like your your guts are like 20 miles long um sort of like <laughs> your guts come out and punch the things in the eyes um i like how there's a, a default power up that sort of comes back to you throughout the game Um you can get a skull which lets you um, have a stronger attack than just your normal attack and it sits as a heat um on top of you and gives you gives the character a bit more um quality to it so you can see what the character actually is because the mummy without a heat thing was kind of like right what's this thing's identity but the skull heat gives it a wee bit more kind of i'm not alone in thinking this right and i know i'm not the way you attack when you've no got a heat power up is disgusting it's grotesque aye 
I played a bit earlier and it made me pure heave, man. It's is, it, is it brains or is it Jenkins' brains or Jenkins' lips? Uh, lower intestines? You've or... got a weird spaghettified face coming out of this thing's abdomen. It's disgusting. It looks like canned meat. See the bit in Braveheart that kind of leaves it to imagination when William Wallace gets hung, drawn, and quartered. I'd imagine that this um, would be like the exposition of This is what it would look like when the, the guts are spilling out this wee character. Chucky D, we'll call him. Aye, the levels are wide open. It's, it's them type of levels that are like big boxes. Remember Johnny was talking about hurricanes in the last episode? Well, instead of being sort of length um, and, and scope, they are like a big box, essentially. So you're going like um, high up in the sky and then down low and looking for platforms. Aye, some of the levels you have to find some doodad as well. Like you, you find Aye. a boss, but then you've got to actually find a, a separate exit to the level. Aye, so you get that. But there is a bit of variance in the levels. For instance, um, there is um, a level where you get the automatic scrolling. You've got to do it to get through the level. There's a water level where you're swimming as well. And I think there's a level where there's lava and stuff as well, so you get all your normal tropes. There's a very strange bonus game after each level um, where you, you can get power-ups in this game that can sort of slow time down or give you a shield or freeze all the enemies on the screen. And the way that you get these power-ups is to play like a sort of maze, you know a maze you get in magazines where you've got to try and get down without any crossing over in the maze? You do that and then you play a sort of memory game or a sort of lining up game um, where you can then go and your prize is either like a power up or just a, a thing that looks conspicuously like a bowl of diarrhea <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Aye, all the power ups are like mad concoctions that this mad scientist has made I guess and um, the the game is, depending on how many coins you get in the level, it gives you more chances to, to win things at the end. This is one thing that I, I had a short playthrough of this like Helen, maybe spent 20 minutes on it or something and playing through a couple of levels my the thing that leapt out to me was too many potions see you having to go into an inventory hover over something and then hit ask to see what it did yeah oh well the yellow potion gives you a brief period in vulnerability but the blue potion makes your heat fly further and Mm -hmm. i was like nah this is too much it only lasts 10 seconds as well which is near near used to md yeah. Aye. Um, but I mean, um, how does the game? How does the game work? So, I as you're saying, th- I get what you're saying, Mac. There's too many potions there in uh, the the pause menu to remember what the ordain stuff. But they do come in handy. The bosses in this game, I like. We're going to go with Johnny Branchfieldism. Big sprites, big ugly motherfucking bosses. Andy, that's an Andy Macism. Johnny just happens to be <laughs> fond of it and references it quite a lot. Yeah, whenever, whenever I hear that phrase, it just brings me back to Kafkin Park and him whipping a bottle of Sprite out his back. So it's never going to change now, you know. But um, aye, the bosses, big motherfuckers, um, they've got set paths. You know, sometimes these bosses don't, um, but these bosses are kind of like Sonic, where the bosses have set paths. And they'll change colour as you batter them, that old trope. Um, and you just sort of smash fuck at them. They're quite easy, to be honest. But they are made easier by using things like um, the freeze potion or the potion that um, makes you faster or makes you more powerful, etc. Or you've got a shield as well that can stop them from having as much effect on you. Your your health is in the form of bogging hearts, not like your Zelda hearts or actual like, fucking hearts that you'd find in your chest. <laughs> Anatomically correct hearts. Like your Splatterhouse hearts. Yes, so which I appreciate because 
I mean, that's something a wee bit different. He's, a, he's a better people than me. When you said Bog and Hearts, my mind went straight to Gorgie. Aye, you got a picture <laughs> of Stephen Naismith in your head. <laughs> Aye. But, um, yep, yeah, every time you complete a level, you put back a bit of the land, which is the shape of a skeleton, and obviously piss off Mr. Um, Decap a wee bit more every time. Uh, you do that. So um, the levels, um, as I said, are big and sparse, full of enemies, um, repetitive enemies to an extent, but I mean, I would say well drawn and um, well designed enemies. They're colourful. You get things like wee frogs, you've got things that look like Daffy Duck that fly at you. Um, they're yeah. not too hard. They all move the same. Did you, did you like a frog, did you? I? Yeah, I went you and fuck, man. You, you want to end up with uh, <laughs> You might end up at the walk park again. That's a joke, right? Aye, so, um, aye, it, it's quite, it's quite cool. Um, I like uh, the look of everything. Everything's very charming. The music as well. The music, as you touched on, McCormick is, um, it's upbeat. It's funky. You know, it's got that mega drive kind of aesthetic to it. Where you're like, ah, oh, quite enjoy this. I quite like this. I like the buzzes and the the melodic kind of stabs. Um, it's it's pleasing. It's it's pleasurable. I like it. Andy, hi. Can I ask you the killer question? Go for it, man. The jump. Yes. How is yes. the jump? The jump is good. The jump is very good. I mentioned that um, the mechanics are sort of um, based on momentum, and the jumps uh, leads into that quite well. I think it's really well designed. The fact that when you jump, it's a perfect height. All right, it's a perfect weight. You feel like you're jumping. It's not this kind of Splatterhouse 2 stuff, and I know you hate when I use this as an example, but where you're like, okay, I'm going to jump, and I don't know where the fuck I'm going to land. Well, you know? you've got... Splatterhouse 2 is an, an arc jump. Decap attack, you have got... Uh, you can change your mid-air jump. Well, that's what I was going to say. You, you prefer a lot more, I, I think. Aye, so Chucky D has got a wee um, thing where you can sort of um, stop yourself uh, having a hard landing. Um, you can use your wee feet but somehow um, manipulates the, the air to make yourself go come down slower so you can kind of aim for an enemy a soft landing so this makes a lot more sense in the Japanese game where your main character's got a cape which lets them float whereas in this he can somehow float despite being a giant fucking mummy with a disembodied head his wee feet his wee feet seem to make him like, um, be able to fly high I don't know what Getting it was like, aerodynamics on this game but <laughs> a lot's left to the imagination one of the things I didn't like, man, I don't know if you remember this, McCormick, when you played it. Some of the, right, some of the choices between the, the the background static objects and the objects you've got to interact with, are a bit confusing at times. For instance, on one of the levels there is clouds that you've got to jump on. Aye, um, in the first level there's two different types of clouds. Yes. Solid ones and no solid ones. Exactly, man. No, I, I don't know if that's laziness or if it's like a workout for yourself or whatever. But um, it comes after me as a wee bit of lazy design. But it's not it's not a game breaker. It's just something like annoyed me a few times when I was trying to jump on a platform. Same colour, same thing, essentially a cloud, but just a slightly different shape, which meant you couldn't land on it. And this happens um, various times um, throughout the, the part of the game that I played. Um, I got to Tibu Land, which is, I believe, level 3. Um, it's quite a short game. I think there's only five levels in it, but I got a level three. I got to the boss there. The boss was um, a automatic scrolling thing, um, whereby it shoots bricks at you, projectiles up the wazoo, man. And you can't. There's no way in hell that you can get 
buy all these things on the screen, you know. Turns into a sort of 3D shooter like Ikaruga or something, or Radiant Silver Gun Wheels, all sorts coming at you rapidly. And um, after you get beat like the seventh time, it kind of starts boiling your piss, even when that's, even when you've got save states on. I did finally complete it, but by uh, the time, the seventh time, the time I died at that boss, I thought, right, tell it off. Which is a shame, because that's many a me problem than a, than a um, decap attack problem. But for what it is, it's, um, this is a game we don't really hear um, and mentioned very often, decap attack. I don't know if it was popular here or if it was one that kind of fell under the radar, but it never really made it into many wee piles for what I can remember. Aye, there was a weird kind of period of time. I don't think I ever played it. I don't think I ever even rented it. I only played it, I think, on emulator when I first had it. Aye. It's it was that weird kind of period of time of games that came out on the Mega Drive before Sonic, and it was a time when the Mega Drive wasn't quite as popular, at least over, at least in the West. So I think it's maybe overlooked a wee bit. Well, you see, a lot of games for that era were classics almost by design because. They were cheaper, they were part Aye. of your pack-ins, like Mega Games, but for some reason, no, Decap Attack didn't get a Sonic status, obviously not many things did, but, you know, it wasn't even a Columns or an Italia 90. I think it's because it was so boggin', man. <laughs> that's, that's what I've got. It could possibly be the reason. <laughs> ah, it's, a, it's one that, I think it's one of them games that have been appreciated recently, more recently, uh, because its appearance on the the Mega Drive Mini, I guess. Um, that thing was pushed like fuck, by the way, so I, I guess that's when most people played it, eh? Have you got a wee recommendation, or is it a recommendation with a caveat, and then we'll, we'll let McCormick come in at the end and do a spiel about the Sonic comic thing about it, because that sounds quite interesting as well. <laughs> Aye, so um, it's a, a wee platformer, nothing offensive about it. It's, it's cool, it's good to jump about. Um, but, uh, I mean... It, I don't want to say it's a wee bit stock, but it might be. It was, I mean, the move, the movement in it, um, whilst, uh, you know, it's quite quite weird to see a movement engine um, based on momentum before Sonic, but here, here is one here, and that's quite interesting, but I'm trying to find interesting things about it. Probably the most interesting thing is the story of it, and how it became Decap Attack from its previous incarnation, the changes in it. Um, and maybe even the Sonic comic sketch, which we're going to hear about now. <laughs> right, so, yeah, this game was a... The reason that I know about this game is basically because um, I subscribed to Sonic the Comic, or I didn't really subscribe to it. What happened was that my dad owned a newsagent and I had access to every issue of Sonic the Comic, which is great growing up, um, and also far too many um, sweets growing up as well. So, Sonic the Comic, obviously the main thrust of that was comics that was based on Sonic the Hedgehog. It started off as kind of individual stories, um, but then they later kind of became more complex, like long-running arcs. So in an average episode, the average issue of Sonic the Comic, you'd have one main Sonic story, you'd have another story about uh, some of Sonic's pals, usually Tails, that would be a bit more of a light-hearted story. And then you might have a couple of comics that are based on other Sega games at the time. Um, and that kind of allowed the team to like, experiment with different art styles and different types of story and stuff like that. There was a cool one about um, Shinobi, which had this kind of ninja samurai sort of like Eastern sort of style to it. And they would usually last a couple of, um, <clears throat> just a, a couple of issues and then they move on to another game. To, to bring us back to January of this year, 
I think Monster World might have had a wee run in the Fleetway comics. I did. That was one of the, the very first ones, actually. So one of the times they um, decided that they would do a sort of strip based off of Decap Attack, um, and they made that into a kind of, I guess, like an Adam's Family, a Monsters type of horror comedy sort of thing. Um, but for some reason, they just kept coming back to Decap Attack. Most of these um, kind of non-Sonic ones would only last for a couple of issues, but the creators of this comic just took a shine to it um, and just quite started really liking writing about the characters and putting them in funny wee situations and that. So, um, yeah, this ended up being a long-running strip in Sonic the Comic from something like, I think, 1993 all the way up to 1998, um, and then they brought them back just... Um, towards the, the end of the, the comic's lifespan. So yeah, I read a couple of them just to as research for this episode and they hold up quite well, quite funny. There's a kind of origin story of Chuck D. Head um, in which they've got this kind of mad Professor Frankenstein, Igor, he's asking Igor to go and find some fresh bodies that he can do experiments on and turn into monsters. And um, as he's doing this, a uh, double glazing salesman comes up to the door and starts pure hassling and like, oh, he's getting him the hard sell but buying double glazing and he's like, oh, fresh corpse is it you need? And he basically distracts him and batters him and then his his body gets re- resurrected and turned into Chucky head. I think you're right, um, Quarterty. Um, Mick Quarterty, we've got two Quarterties today, but um, I think you're right, Mick, because this does seem a lot more um, interesting than the actual game. Well, the when... McCormick mentioned this in the chat. I gave it a wee Google, and veteran um, British Sonic the Comic guy, artist, whatever you want to call him, Nigel Kitching, rated the decap attack strip as the favourite thing that he got today, because I, <laughs> I get the impression that this was just, well, if you go to put the wee decap attack for that issue, you could go for rails a wee bit. Nobody really gave a fuck what you were doing with Decap Attack. You could just do what you wanted. Yeah, because you had these like long-running kind of epic storylines about Sonic, and then because nobody cared about Decap Attack as a game, like shortly after it came out, it just kind of became the same thing. You could do what you want with them. So these were just all these wee kind of light-hearted, self-contained comedy skits. They remind me of something you might see in the Beano or the Dandy. Aye, Sega. Sega had the the like. These pronouncements, I, I think it was more of a Sega of America thing, but I'd imagine the Brits had to adhere to it as well, that were well, the Ten Commandments of Sonic, which were things that you could not show him do, so you <laughs> couldn't show him holding a gun and things like that, so I think you were a wee bit limited in what you could do in a comic. Anyway, sorry Andy. Ah yeah, it sounds like, I mean that's what I used to love about Sonic comic, I think we were lucky, America had this weird kind of thing about Sonic where they created all these weirdos, man, um, with their TV show and their um, comic books, Ken Penders and all that creepy shit. Over here, we had um, guys who were inspired by, as you said, my comic, um, the Beano, the Dandy, um, Ur Willie, Bruins, whatever, I don't know. But all Also the old... like 2000 AD as well. Aye, oh, exactly. And, and I don't know what... And I, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself British, but we do have pretty good humour. It's good. I. It's good to see that you can take these kind of characters that are just pure random and make something brilliant with your writing. And that's what I think's happened here, um, which is cool. <laughs> I just, I just sent a panel in the chat um, 
from that first issue of the talking about decap attack as well where Professor Frankenstein says yeah you're actually one of the best in my experiments most of them um, come out quite mentally challenged and they end up presenting daytime TV shows <laughs> and he says anyway I wonder what happened to Richard and Judy <laughs> oh I yeah, seen that earlier they used, I'll, to, I'll <laughs> they used to reference British daytime TV shows quite a lot which I suspect um sake of Japan would have been pretty baffled by <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe check out the game if you've got a high tolerance for old platformers and check out the comic if I don't know you want to complete that sentence Mick <laughs> <laughs> just just yeah I, I always recommend it it's, just, <laughs> it's part of Neddy lore <laughs> right no this gets us on to uh, arguably more meaty games for the spooky season. This hardly needs an introduction, but Helen, why have you picked Luigi's Mansion for Mr. McCormick? Um, I don't know if it's because I'm a younger child of a family, but I also, I think I have player two syndrome sometimes, right? <laughs> so Aye. Luigi himself, this is, Luigi's Mansion is his second standalone game after Mario was missing, and for my money, it's the best one full unfiltered Luigi right Mario's gone you're in a mansion you've got to catch ghosts all the ghosts have their own wee quirks and personalities and it's a very simple but effective mechanic so I played it on the Gamecube you just got to swirl that analog stick around as many times as you can burn all the skin off your hand and be done with it (laughs) and there's something so simple but so good about it and it's very camp as a game aye (laughs) Yeah, so I had a really good time with this one. So the the premise of this is basically that Luigi has won a competition um, and he's won this, this brand new house. So he goes to check out the house, finds out basically it's a big horrible haunted mansion. And also Mario had gone pretty before him to check it out and now he's gone and nobody knows where he is. Um, so he's kind of searching about this mansion to find Mario and it's full of ghosts which creep him out. And what a brilliant setup for for a game because you play a game with Mario and Mario is full of confidence. He's the protagonist. He knows what he's doing. Knows what he wants. And he's going to get there by jumping, jumping on baddies and stuff like that. Luigi, you know, being player two, isn't he sure of himself at all? And uh, he basically spends this entire game being absolutely fucking terrified. I think this is the uh, and I mean a, a Mario lore expert. Please correct me. Send me a fucking private mail or whatever. I'm, I'm open to that. I think this might be the first game where, you know, Luigi, his whole thing was just, he's player two, he's taller green Mario, he's he's another guy. Is this the first time they thought, we'll get Luigi a personality, and Luigi's personality is that he is a fucking coward? <laughs> I like it. I like it. I mean, possibly it's like it's a good development, though. I think like to to make your player too. Do you know what I really like about us, right? And this is a compliment for Nintendo across the board. Like Sega would make like the Sonic series. All the characters move the same, look the same, and their games are sort of the same. Like not was chaotic, which is basically just an extension of Sonic. I like how they gave each character like their own devices in their games, like. Yoshi doesn't play like Mario, Mario doesn't play like Wario, it does a wee bit but not completely. And then uh, the, the Luigi game plays completely different as well. Got a lot of respect for that because um, it's, it just shows that they care, they give a fuck. 
Aye. You know? They've had a few kind of funny takes on Luigi's character. In um, Super... Not Super Paper Mario. Paper Mario with a Thousand Year Door, you occasionally meet Luigi and he's been on like a kind of parallel quest to your own and he pure regales you with tales of this quest he's been on and things are always going pure wrong to him and he's having a pure time at it. Um, <laughs> but you never actually see any of it. You just hear it uh, through Luigi. But yeah, in this game, they've, they've characterised Luigi really well. Um, this is the part I know that Mick enjoys, but there's a, just everything about his character, to the way he moves, the, the wee sounds and noises he makes and that, you can tell he's just having a pure terrible time. Uh, it's pretty funny. He makes, like, he creeps about this mansion sort of really gingerly. He hums a wee tune. He, he hums the actual background tune um, of the levels, which is quite funny. And yeah, he's just constantly getting spooked by ghosts and making uh, creeped, creeped out noises and running away. This is something that it's actually also quite good to have Helen on this one for, and it it, it makes it quite fucking appropriate that it's a pick of hers. But the first thing that comes to mind for me with Luigi's Mansion is the fucking sound design, man. Like, the, the, the wee fella sounds terrified, that quiver in his voice, the xylophone noise when you catch ghosts, the creepy doors, the fucking music, him humming the theme tune. I, I really think it's a fucking... It's a feast for the senses. I mean, it looks brilliant, but the sound is where it really fucking pops. Man... To interject, it is a topper, and with the characterisation of Luigi as well, you mentioned Paper Mario, what was it, The Door something? I've not Th- played thousand it Thousand Year Door. Thousand Year Door. The first Paper Mario, I think, came out before this, and not to link sensitivity to being a wee shite bag, right? But you do get a wee <laughs> Luigi's Diary a fair bit in the first Paper Mario, which I think also helps with his shite bag, sensitive man characteristics <laughs> in Aye. the mansion. But for the sound design for my money as well is absolutely amazing not to skip ahead to what you're probably going to talk about which is the ghosts but you know the piano key musical ghost and stuff as well some of it's just absolutely great yeah yeah that, that bit was brilliant so the, the way this game works is effectively you've got you've got a big mansion which is sort of gated by keys um similar to resident evil but with a, a what I think is a brilliant addition in that when you pick up a key, it will show you in the map what door that key opens, um, which makes life so much simpler. But you're running around um, and you meet this guy called Professor E. Gad, who's been living in the vicinity of the mansion. The mansion appeared and he's invented this weapon. It's basically a hoover on a backpack um, that can suck up these ghosts. Um, so what you have today is... For your generic kind of ghosts, you have to spook them with your flashlight. So you have to move the, your flashlight away and back again or turn it off and on and spook them. And then it reveals their heart. And when, when you can see their heart, that means they're vulnerable to your weapon. Um, so you then press the R button and start using this vacuum cleaner. And then a little counter will appear on the ghost, um, counting down from a number from 10 to like 100 or whatever. And while that's counting down, You've basically, you're chasing this ghost around, so you've got to put, put your joystick in the opposite direction for the way that the, the ghost is going, um, and then you kind of have this sort of tug-of-war room eventually ends up in your um, in your vacuum. There's kind of small ghosts, which are a bit of a nuisance. There's your kind of main enemies, which can appear slightly randomly, like they would in a Resident Evil game. Um, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. And then... 
the main thing you're doing is track tracking these kind of named ghosts. Um, you can see all these portraits of them were hanging up in Egad's lab, but they're the, the sort of main characters in the game uh, that you're, you're trying to get rid of. And for each of them, there's a, a bit of a gimmick. Um, you've got to solve a kind of some sort of puzzle and kind of figure out how to expose them and then trap them. So yeah, and every one of them is, is completely different. And you've only got access to like a few different verbs, you would call it, like in terms of what you can do with your, your flashlight and your your camera, which is on a, a Game Boy, a Game Boy Horror, it's called, and your your vacuum. But it just uses those elements in so many different ways to um, to have puzzles for you to solve. See Professor E. Gad. Now, he's kind of... He's a harmless weirdo, right? Aye. This is how I kind of see him. Is he a paranormal researcher who has been investigating Luigi's Mansion? Or does he happen to just be in the area? Does he live near it or something like that? I'm not actually sure, because he said that he was there when the mansion appeared. Aye. I don't know what's possessed him to just suddenly go in and start checking the place out. Maybe just like a just a sense of curiosity, him being a scientist. Aye. So yeah, so so these ghosts like there's a there's, there's all different ways you can kind of track them down, inventive ways to kind of take them out. Um, so there's one who's kind of stalking the halls, carrying about this big uh, candelabra. Um, so you've basically got to use a fire power up in him. He he freaks out when things are fire and he runs to the kitchen. Um, and then he douses himself in water, and then after that he can relax. And when he's relaxed, that's that's it. That's him exposed, and you can take him in. There's another guy who is like this big sort of gluttonous guy, this gluttonous ghost. And you can see him eating dinner, and these wee waiter waiters, ghost waiters, are coming around serving him food. So if you dispatch the waiters, he eventually runs out of food, and he gets raging at you, starts fighting you until he gets exhausted, and then you can you can pull him in. So yeah, they they keep kind of introducing. Just new elements and wee clever wee puzzles and how to how to dispatch these guys. But it's all very accessible. Like it's you know, I think a kid could play this easily enough. There's nothing too scary, there's nothing particularly challenging. It takes things in a way that Nintendo's kinda want to do. It takes innovations that maybe other people have made, but then just pure streamlines them down to something that's quite simple and fun. So yeah, elements of Resident Evil um, elements of um, I don't know if that this, I think this probably does this probably did came out after Gregory Horror Show do you reckon but there's definitely elements of that in it as well um, in terms of just this cast of characters that you've got to figure out different ways of dispatching it was a launch title for the Gamecube it came out at the same time as um, you got a Gamecube quite early I remember Aye. but we were all about Sonic Adventure 2 at the time so that's kind of did you have Luigi's Mansion? I never did no no Aye, so it kind of passed me by, but recently I played it and it's it's fucking good, man. I got my wee boy the second one recently, but I've not had a chance to play it yet. But we did play, we went to an arcade up in Glasgow, the new one, up in the Eagle Centre, and there's an arcade version. Ah, no way. It's pretty cool, man. You use, like, uh, the Hoover sucker up, I think, whatever it's called, and you actually use it, man. It's pretty cool. I think it's cool. called, like, the Poltergust 3000 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah, like that, yeah. something mental. But um, I, the arcade game's quite fun. It's a bit like, um, aye, it's an unreal shooter. But um, Luigi's Mansion, it's pretty cool. But uh, I, I, do you know what? I'm going to come out and see it. And you're going to hate us. I prefer this to Resident Evil. I, I think it's more fun. <laughs> do you know what? 
I mean, you're allowed. Yeah, you're allowed. I, it's, it's Resident Evil for babies. I'm not saying that you're a baby, but um, no. Here, listen. See when this first came out, as Mick's been saying, just fucking about in the mansion. You know, even testing the physics with the Hoover, like pulling at the curtains and things like that. I was fucking blown away by it, man. I was mesmerised to see all the different wee things you could do in terms of like interacting with the environment. This I... is a, a game that when it came out really impressed me. Like, it, I, I think I think we got a GameCube quite early, and this was a launch title, and it, it was maybe one of the first games of that generation that I had played and I, I remember it really fucking blowing my mind. Yeah, like the, I think the physics and stuff would have been pretty impressive by the day. It still looks quite impressive now. I think it's a good looking game. A lot of good like um, shadows, like kind of dark shadows, which can add to the sort of creepiness of the the mansion. And yeah, the, the Hoover, the way it interacts with things, uh, just kind of physics objects that like makes things shake around and you can kind of suck up like tablecloths and all that sort of stuff. And there's, yeah, there's little interesting wee details. I noticed at the start that you can you can do a kind of first person view looking through your Game Boy camera and um, I just decided to take a picture of myself in the mirror and then that creates some kind of crazy effect and it warps you back to um, your home you get a kind of like um, foyer of the, the mansion no, no one ever tells you that but you just kind of have to discover it for yourself Aye. Um, so those are cool wee details um, there's a button for kind of interacting with things in the world like opening up a drawer or something like that but if you press that and there's nothing to interact with, Luigi just goes, Mario! Mario! <laughs> and there's always there's all different variations of it. Again, props to um, Charles Martinet, who I actually didn't realise did the voice of Luigi as well as Mario, um, but uh, an amazing performance for him in this game. Yeah, it, it was also Wario. Fucking... I told Rudolf Hess took over. <laughs> <laughs> Man of many talents, for well, sure. <laughs> Well, I'm not spending another episode on is Wario German. Right? I, I, I can't, I can't do it. Although, although Helen actually is coming to his live from Germany, so Helen, you could be the final authority Man, on this. His fixation on garlic would definitely hint towards France if he was any of the major European powers. So that's just fact. Interesting. I, I think France is evil Italy as well. Did I mention the wee the wee hood is a Game Boy Color? It's pretty cool. A game boy, well, it's a Game Boy Horror. Yeah, Game Boy Horror. It's pretty cool, man. Oh, I do like that Game Boy Color. I like the way it looks. The inventor, um, Professor Egad, also made Flood, the device from Mario Sunshine, which shoots water. <laughs> he's he's a bit like that professor that invented like CFCs and lead and petrol. And like incidentally invented two of the worst things um embrace <laughs> humanity. I say that in jest, but I know that um Flood was very unpopular at the time. And I don't think Luigi's Mansion had got a great reception when it first came out. Am I right in thinking that? people thought it was too short and the the fact that you weren't getting a quote unquote proper Mario game as a launch title Aye, led right. it to getting quite unfairly scorned. Look, people are dumb. People are dumb. Aye, they, they try to do something new. They they put out this lovely game for people and fucking ungrateful arseholes. Um, Helen, you so you've got one of the sequels on the three DS. Am I right in saying? Yeah, I do. I've got Luigi's Mansion too. Um, it's very fun to play on the three DS with the kind of analog stick. I've got one of those two DS, three DS sort of vibes. 
Aye. So do you just like swizzle it about to suck up ghosts or? Aye, it's very much the same thing. Um, Aye. Very fun still. But I do have to ask if you are familiar. I think, Corky, you mentioned the, the dark shadows of it. Do you know this kind of creepypasta-esque Luigi's Mansion horror thing? Oh, God. Don't tell me there is one. There is it... one. <laughs> <laughs> these, these things, are, are, I'm very hit or miss with these. Like, there's some incredible works of art uh, in the genre of video game uh, creepypastas, and there's also some that are, like, just babies... 12 year olds trying to scare each other so like what camp does this fall under so this is a shanner but it's actually um it's just like um a problem in the the making of the game so basically there's this room that you go in towards i don't even think it is towards the end of the game but lightning crackles and you see a shadow on the wall right right and the whole thing is that it looks like luigi's hanging but it's actually just an error with the shadow mechanics and the camera angle on the wall (laughs) right but it was so egregious and there were so many stories about it online that when they rebooted Luigi's Mansion 1 to like the 3DS or whatever, they took the shadow out. They took it out completely. <laughs> yeah, Nintendo have got a pretty zero tolerance policy and that kind of stuff. That's Aye, pretty funny so actually. If you look it up, there are all these theories like he was dead the whole time or Luigi was such a wimp he killed himself in the mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Totally the thing that like Shigeru Miyamoto would have written for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to um yeah, I actually got to that part just um that's just where I got to um before I started recording here. Um it is quite a short game, which is good because I only had like three days to play it, but I'm pretty much over halfway through the game. Yeah, the bit with the lightning striking kind of precedes a, a boss fight where you're in a, a graveyard fighting a a, a ghost of a ghost. Um, which is a bit meta, but yeah, these ghosts are already dead, and then then they're ghosts on top of that, and yeah, lightning kind of strikes and it illuminates where where you can find this boss to take him out. There's there's a few good encounters so far. There's another boss fight against this horrible baby, which is quite good. Is this Chauncey? Yeah, Chauncey's Fuck horrible. Fuck that cunt, man! I hate him. <laughs> um, yeah, he kind of levitates toys towards you and, atta- and attacks you, and then after that's done, he just kind of. There's this pure spin attack thing. <laughs> um, I forget how it was you actually defeated him. No, I. How is it you actually defeat him in the end? Yeah, he turned you small. Is it something about sucking up a ball? Aye, aye, you take his ball, you suck his bob into the hoover and then hit him with it and then he gets pissed off and he, he turns you tiny and he's massive. You fight this massive baby. <laughs> so that bit's pretty good. Um, there's a character I think called uh, Melody or Melodia and you, she's, um, she loves music. You get this music room, they've got all different musical instruments, and when you interact with each musical instrument, it starts playing individual parts of the melody for like the, the water levels in the first Aye. Mario game. Um, and then they will start playing it, and then she will appear playing the piano, and she'll ask you, like, what does this music remind you of? And you can say either uh, water or sky, or I don't know. Uh, of course, the answer's water. Um, and then that's how you kind of kick off the boss fight with her. But I, it's, it's just clever how there's just so many different wee um, interactions with all these different ghosts and you've got to deal with them all differently. I, I really enjoyed it. It's, you know, short and kind of self-contained. But yeah, it's good fun. And if you think it's been maybe, you know, given a bit of a bad rap in the past, I would encourage you sort of to to reconsider it for sure. 
there is one thing of note when I was looking because um, after giving you the game I, I wanted to do a wee refresher on all the different ghosts that you got right and the last yeah. boss of this game spoiler if you want to skip ahead no spoilers for Luigi's Mansion 1 right it's called Vincent Van Gogh and this really <laughs> fucking stuck with me right because I was like of course the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo had the lockdown on Vincent Van Gogh they couldn't use it yeah. <laughs> that really got me <laughs> that was all I had to say. Does he look like Vincent Price? I a wee bit. Scooby Doo is actually a pretty good uh, reference in terms of the tone of this game. I would say. Aye. Yeah, it's it's spooky without being like mind bending horror. Unserious. But no, all I was going to say is, um, Helen, I know this is one, this is probably a top five for yourself. So it was just before we closed the. The, the book on it in terms of Dynamite and Eddie, if there was any wee extra thing you wanted to add before we we moved on. I don't know, I mean, I feel like I, I got it all down, other than I wanted to give an extra shout out to the clairvoyant ghost that you encounter there's like a bit in the game and it's like a through line where she's like, you need to find five things of Mario's so at one point you find his hat or his glove or his shoe and then you get it to her and then she d- kind of doesn't put up a fight She's a pretty sound ghost. She just like suck me up. The whole gallery of like the fact that there's like an interactive rogues gallery where you suck up all the ghosts and then you get like their portraits and stuff. There were just a lot of things that really like I just really liked about the game. Yeah. You guys got a machine that turns ghosts uh, into portraits, but I've not actually revisited the the portrait gallery. I maybe check it. You should do it. Aye, definitely. (laughs) It's worth a wee look. Well. That brings us on to our showstopper of the evening, the final game, which the eagle-eared listener, particularly of our Halloween episodes, and going away back to episode one of Dynamite and Eddie, we are tackling the original Splatterhouse. This was... I mean, when we started this podcast, and it was like, Mum will talk about a couple of fucking old Sega games, 16-bit games... Splatterhouse 2 was literally the first thing I thought of. I was like, I'd get that on there. This is If I'm talking about anything, it's that. So, huge affection for this series. We brought it back. We had Andy look at the third one, I think I... on a Halloween episode, where the, you know, we had the, the bear boss fight and all that. It's been Andy that's been playing them mostly, but when Helen was younger, uh, with obviously a keen interest in horror, I remember her watching me play Splatterhouse 2 quite a lot, probably on the family computer rather than the Mega Drive. Is that right, Helen? I just vividly remember a bit where you're in a boat and there's all the tentacles towards the end. So I vividly remember you playing it and me being very into it. But Aye. So the Splatterhouse connection there and Splatterhouse plays a lot of homage to classic horror. Basically every level is another wee nod to a different horror movie. So I thought, who better than Helen to to tackle the original arcade Splatterhouse and come on and talk about it? How did you get on with it? So how I got on with it, I mean, I can break down the story of Splatterhouse and whatever, but I do have to fest the fact that I'm currently stuck um, in the game and I'm trying to get 
Do you think either of these bozos finish their games? <laughs> Do not fucking what worry about that. You don't. Yeah, you don't need to fucking no fesh, fashion needed. You have you have given this more than your fucking time, right? So don't worry about well, that. To be honest, I've been playing it mostly on work time, so. <laughs> Aye, good. Well, me too, but that's yeah. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But basically, for for your first splatterhouse, I was playing the Japanese arcade version, 1988, so none of your turbo graphics, absolute nonsense. I'm not here for right. that. The plot of the game, as we are probably all familiar, it's a dark and stormy night, and our main characters, Rick and Jennifer, run up to the titular splatter house to take shelter, not knowing that the place is crawling with ghouls, ghosts, and whatever, right? Yes. And also, to elaborate on the original game, there was like a promotional comic script that makes it clearer that the Splatterhouse is actually West Mansion of famous parapsychologist Dr. West. He might also be like a teacher or something of Jennifer and Rick. Like, I'm not 100% sure on that one. Did H.P. Lovecraft sign off on any of this? <laughs> well, the West Mansion and indeed a lot of Splatterhouse is... At, which I'm sure we got into last time we talked about any of these. And probably the uh, first time as well. <laughs> aye. It, it is a deliberate reference to Reanimator. Aye. Which is a perfect movie. Aye. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Helen. Aye. But basically, so, um, you go into the mansion and then you hear a, a light little scream and all of a sudden your bird is gone and you wake up wearing the terror mask. Which yes. Um, you've probably waxed on about the terror mask before. Throughout the, the Splatterhouse series, it has like more and more of a part, I would say. But from what we learn later, it is an Aztec deity mask. I think it's Mayan. Is it Mayan? Aye. But, I mean, none of this explains why it is just a hockey mask. <laughs> it's a, well, right? hockey back in ancient Central Mexico. And <laughs> and. Splatterhouse 2 and more so Splatterhouse 3 they make it more into a skull mask. Aye. In the first gen you are just Jason Voorhees. Like let's be honest the the character sprite is Jason Voorhees. The the ancient Mayans made a hockey mask and I don't know why. So aye. Rick <laughs> gets the mask on him. He becomes infinitely more swole. He doesn't really yes. understand what's going on right? And from there on out, the goal is very simple. You've got to bounce about from stage to stage because it's like a classic beat-em-up, right? With, yes. for my money, a pretty killer, spooky soundtrack. Aye. And you've got to go stage from stage, killing all the enemies, whatever. And also, you know, what is it, 1988? You can see all the influences of these great like, 80s movies throughout. So as alluded to earlier, it's got like, a really strong Evil Dead 2. And from level to level as well, you've got like poltergeist kind of things and that. It's just like an amalgamation of all these great, great horrors. There's a there's a lot of alien in there with, you know, those wee horrible wormy things that pop out of the wall. That's the first boss, I think. And um, aye, there is a poltergeist boss when you get to that room and knives fly at you and chairs fly at you. It's like unseen spectres are doing this. Well, I was going to say, those wee hangs that you akin to, like the alien face huggers, I would also say for my money, if you've seen the deadly spawn from like, 1983, they're the exact same hang. That's what ah. they are. So, you know, like, horrors are like parodies of themselves and themselves forever and ever, right? But... Aye. They are basically the same enemy. 
this is part of the the beauty of Splatterhouse. The it wears its references on its sleeve, right? Yeah, it's a love letter to horror. Everything. I think we've lost something going forward, right? And this is probably just me being the, you know, the old guy going. Ah, uh, it was better when when I was a kid. Everything was better when I was younger. My thing's better than your thing, kids. But um, there's something about pixel horror. See the way things look in Splatterhouse, Splatterhouse 2. You you lose something when everything's cleaner and more realistic looking, I think. They've got their own grotesque charm about them that's its own unique kind of horror. Well, this was a gory game at the time, isn't it? Like, even the name Splatterhouse got the attention of the censors and all that. Probably unjustly. Um, Helen will have a whole thing doing about changes between uh, different versions and central well, 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 even i'm pretty sure when they remade splatterhouse for like the xbox or whatever the re-release germany uh-huh. was like we're not putting this out fucking oh really again i <laughs> always at it always at it. but i as we move through the splatterhouse canon there's as you were saying the pixel art is fucking beautiful for my money right you get a lot of exploding stomachs yes you got a lot of like kind of vomit you get a lot of just like heedless monsters, whatever. My favourite weapons in the game as well, right? So you've got a variety of weapons throughout. But in the first few stages, for your money, you want that like two by four or that pipe where you can just splat uh, the monsters clean against the wall. There's nothing more cathartic. That was really satisfying in the second That was, one, a, aye, that was my favourite bit. You hit the me wasp splat. <laughs> so good. I remember the second one was probably the first game I played. Was it my right in thinking it was the first game I played on? This? Dynamite Neddy, episode one. Spinball, Saleel, Splatterhouse 2. Aye. And um, I remember I, I since played the third one as well. Aye, I like them. I like them. I, I remember um, the second one, I went in it the whole wrong way. Three three was more your taste. Aye. Three, they kind of did a wee bit more of a final fight, Streets of Rage thing about it, where it, there was more an emphasis on the punching. One and two have more platforming in them. And there's very kind of deliberateness to them. But for, for my money, 2 is the best in the series. But it, it's possibly down to aesthetic choice whether you prefer 1 or 2 because they're kind of the same game, except one of them was on a Mega Drive. Um, I, I like the look of these arcade Sega games because even though they came out before the Mega Drive, a lot of them looked better than the, the Mega Drive games because they had like, yep. mere screen space. This, like this, isn't the, this isn't the Sega, it's Namco. Who were a competitor of Sega in the arcade? Aye, but I, I don't know about the hardware though, is what I mean. Alright, okay. Alright, so, I mean, as you guys are probably aware, you move through, the the most part of the game is in the mansion, right? You get your kind of classic scrolling through the mansion, your torture rooms, your whatevers, but there's also quite a big variety, I would say, in the stages. You've got your haunted forest, you've got your, I don't know, well, when you get a level 5, right? there's a branching pathways kind of scheme which i don't know i've not played a lot of like classic platformers of this time but i felt like it it felt quite unique to me the fact that there were several different rooms and several different routes to get this final boss fight uh, it's in the third one as well isn't it the third one's got that in it the, the third one uh, that's that's way further further down the line that's like mid 90s so that's i mean it's not old hat but it's not unheard of. The second one didn't have branching pathways, but I stage five in Splatterhouse, I ended up taking the lower path. But you're right. Um, in terms of an arcade game, 
going back to earlier this year, we had Dungeons and Dragons on the arcade, and part of the reason you would be replaying that and putting more credits into it would be to take a different route and see a different level. And that was available to you in 1988 with Splatterhouse. Well, because for, for my money, I've been having a real rough time with uh, your missus boss fight with Jennifer, stage five end Aye. boss, right? Aye. So I was trying to find a way to like, navigate the stage in its fullest, the easiest way, which meant that I played every room. And I hate fucking water levels, man. And not to get into the jump of Rick, but here's a swole fucking guy. He's basically a fridge of a man. And I do not think that <laughs> yes. fucking jumping Splatterhouse is very good, especially when it comes to yes. navigating like, mines and water, right? Yes, 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 yes. I agree. So totally. when I got to like, other paths, it, it made things a lot easier, let's say. But it Aye. was fun to explore the fact that you had all these different rooms. You know, it made the mansion feel like, very big, very expansive. It really added to the whole game. Rick's jump. We, and we went through this a way back at Splatterhouse 2, right? He's got a Castlevania jump, I would call it. It's, it's an pathetic. arc. Once you've committed to the jump, you're in it. See if you... Oh, I timed that wrong. There's no wiggle room. You are in the jump. You are hitting the thing that you are jumping into. You can't really change direction mid-air. You're fucked. Which is absolutely fucked for one of the levels that you can do in stage five, affectionately known as like the slippy flare room, right? You just Aye. have to keep sliding over these like open ditches of like fucking gore, disembodied parts like writhing and then these hands shut up, right? But you can't stay still because everything is like on an angle. So you just gotta keep jumping and hoping for the best. Do you know how to do that slide attack? Because I did it a few oh. times by accident, and I do not know how to pull it off properly. I'm not going to fuck with you, man. I got this far, and I've not used it once. <laughs> I've not used it once. It's his most powerful attack. I know this for yeah. a fact, because I was looking on... I've been stuck on this boss for ages. I reverted to game FAQs and was like, right, I know I'm not being an idiot here. I've got the pattern down. Is there any way to make this easier? Nah nothing nah. and i've looked at it well let's get into this boss because well okay actually it's it's one of the most memorable set pieces in the game but i want to bring up another one is it biggie chainsaw man no oh do you know what let's get into all three like <laughs> right. talk about chainsaw man first because he's pretty fucking good so i think that it's the end of stage three where we get this cunt called Big Chainsaw Man and Mahi, <laughs> yes. right? And it, you know, it harkens back. I have a lot of issues with chainsaw enemies in games, probably since watching Resi 4 being played when I was away, right? Yes. So he takes maybe like 10 to 12 hits and you get these shotguns, which have got like eight hits in them or something. So if you time the hits on the shotgun, you're pretty solid. But if you don't time the hits on the shotgun and get the most use out of them, you're absolutely fucked. You're getting cut to pieces at the end of this level. He is solid. He's solid. But he's just, he's cracker looking. He's got two chainsaw arms, which is a bit Evil Dead in itself. Aye. Just again, a great grotesque looking fucking pixel monster. He's beautiful. What's cooler than one chainsaw arm? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The other one I wanted to bring up was... There's a bit where Rick kind of goes to mass in this. <laughs> oh, aye. So, 
I have a whole bit about this because this bit was heavily censored. <laughs> I blood got us monsters. That's all fine, but criticizing the Catholic Church was a step too far. Aye. <laughs> so basically, you get to like, the kind of Catholic boss in the chapel or whatever. <laughs> you walk through, and there's organ music. There's an altar at the end, and there's all these disembodied heads swerving around. And your main like attack for this is an axe which is slightly slower swinging than your 2x4 or whatever in the earlier stages. Still pretty effective. And you need to basically like gun it through the stage, watching the way that these heads move around, ducking and diving against them and then swatting them. And then you need to corner this fucking like mad cross in the corner with all these disembodied Aye. heads around it. you got to just keep swinging the axe at this cross. You need to destroy the cross. you got you got to fuck that cross up. <laughs> you get to the end of the stage and Rick walks up to the altar and he has a wee bit of pause because like a hymn is played on this organ but then it, it kind of abruptly like starts like there's a somebody smashing the keys and then like a horrible noise and it's like no you're not getting any peace you need to continue on but yes um, censorship very famously with Nintendo games, one of the things they did was take crosses out of everything. So in Japany, like JRPGs, they were shown as like healing rooms and Harvest Moon, I think they took the, the cross out of the church and stuff like that. For some reason, there was the impression that Westerners, when they like to see Christianity depicted in a video game. I think it's any kind of religious sim symbology. Um, Aye. Took out like Stars of David from sometimes as well. Aye. So the am I right in saying that the cross boss just Disney exists in the American Turbo Graphics version? So basically the cross boss is reduced to as I was saying about all these disembodied heads ducking about, it's just a massive heat. So they basically replace the cross with this my like chimera of heads like, jammed together. And then, Aye. as you were saying, towards the end of the level where you get a bit for pause at the altar, there's just no altar. You just move on. As far nah. as I'm aware, anyway. Not as good. Not as good. And then also, towards the end, I'm pretty sure they switch a few crosses out with, like, tombstones. Which Aye. just feels a bit, like, unnecessary. I don't know. The, uh, you get to a grave near the end and the mask shoots out a bit of energy. To make something pop up out it, and that is a cross. So I'm guessing that's just a grave. Aye. But I the um, talk is through what happens because this is this is a subversion of tropes. So I'm a big fan of it. You've got your um, damsel in distress trope, right? Which is standard in computer games. Princess Peach, Zelda. You complete a level, and the reward is that the woman gives your character a wee kiss or a hug or a heart appeals and they say thank you in Splatterhouse when you reach the damsel in distress something quite different happens so basically you finish your level 5 branching pathways you sigh a brief sigh of relief and you get to the room where you see your missus or your bird Jennifer and she's on this kind of either a bed or an old school fainting couch surrounded by monsters that you've previously encountered and they all kind of just fuck off and then you get this beautiful beautiful piece of audio of her going um 
my darling and then suddenly she fucking falls to the deck starts to glitch out and becomes this massive fucking monster which i highly rate <laughs> yeah it's good <laughs> and then from there you know as rick when in the terror mask you're torn but you have really no choice other than to pummel fuck out your bird Rick, Rick in Terror Mask has one mode, <laughs> and it's it's splatter. It's in the name. It's right. all he knows how to do. And throughout the boss fight, you get several fake outs. So there's like three phases of this Jennifer fight, right? Um, she does like big jump, wee jump, big jump, wee jump for the first two stages, and you can knock her out. Although her reach is fairly fucking brutal, right? But after each phase, she kind of morphs back into your beautiful little bird. And she kind of is like, oh, Rick. And then she fucking explodes back into this fucking monster again. Which is top. I fucking love it for my money. Yeah. When you you day kill the Jennifer monster after the three phases of it, she finally morphs back into Jennifer again and the, the digitised voice comes through and she says, thank you, and then dies in your arms. <laughs> <laughs> which we won't think on that too hard for the rest of the Splatterhouse games because it creates a whole nightmare. Well, she turns into a kind of ghost and flies away and then uh, Rick just goes, fuck it, I'm, I'm killing everything. And the, the rest of the game is just about vengeance rather than saving anybody. But aye, that, that brings us into the splot... The, Splot. <laughs> that was me combining. That was me combining Splatterhouse and plot there. That brings us into the plot of Splatterhouse Two, where the mask starts talking to Rick again and says, "Oh, we can save her." So the second game is that you actually can go back and rescue Jennifer from the afterlife somehow. But anyway, I well, the, this game ends with your mask basically like it comes off, it falls into pieces, and then it kind of does a wee laugh and then it comes back together so you know you're not done with the mask by the end of this i love the terror mask it's possibly my favorite element of the splatterhouse games yeah you don't find out much about it but throughout the first three games i've not played that xbox game it's got enough of a personality to just make me get really into it well i love it too right as a huge fan of Jim Carrey's The Mask and any other movie where a mask creates huge shenanigans, right? <laughs> I just, like, I'm a fan of it. And not to keep saying it is very camp, but it totally is, man. You put on this mask, you become a buff alter ego of yourself who's a bit no-nonsense, a bit loves the trouble, a bit loves to absolutely slaughter all these ghouls, right? And Aye. again, with the censorship, right? The Turbo Graphics version, you've got the red mask, not nearly as fun, not nearly as cunty, or as Friday the 13th Part 3, an absolute waste. It was, they they were shite bags about the Friday the 13th people suing them, so in America, you get this ugly red terror mask that's just best left in the dustbin of history. Now, whenever they do compilations and stuff, they never put the red mask version of Rick in. He's, He's forgotten about. Thank fuck. Aye, it's terrible. I don't know, right, so... Splatterhouse 1 has a lot of charm, right? The the sprites have their own sort of charm. The tunes are really good. I think the first tune has a wee bit more Japanese-ness to it in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. I am merely a fan of 2, and I don't know if that's out of familiarity. 
I think maybe if I grew up with one, one would be my favourite. Because gameplay-wise, there's no much different between one and two. But two is very much more Mega Drive in terms of look and sound and feel. Well, I guess I've not ever given Splatterhouse 2 an actual play. I've been a passenger on other people's plays of it. So I could not make that decision. Just now, Splatterhouse 1 is sitting pretty at the top of my rankings, so... Well, this Galotian season, I would urge you to maybe <laughs> get 2 and 3 a wee bash. Just right. to... And hey, you, you might like 3 the best. That kind of beat-em-up gameplay and the fact that you can... Alright, the game doesn't ex- encourage you to explore the mansion. You... It encourages you to make the quickest path through it. But you can kind of kick about Rick and Jennifer's house. It's really fun. The other games are definitely worth a look. They're all worth a look. I'm a, I'm a bit yeah, uh, I'm a bit evangelical about Splatterhouse. I, I love them. You're a big Splatterhead. I'm a Splatterhead, aye. He knows everything about this block. <laughs> this block. <laughs> Mick, how dare you? You've, you're, you've forced my hand to keep that error in. I can't even <laughs> just breeze past that and make it look like I didn't say splot. Usually I would take things like that out, but that one was too funny. <laughs> Helen, Giza, your recommendations, your conclusion on this, like what? I sum it up for us. For my money, it's solidly good fun. I don't really see anything wrong with the game, you know? Any parts of it, even being currently stuck... I'm frustrated, but it's not like a resentful frustration. Um, And if you are a horror heed like me, if you do have a lot of love for these kind of like early 80s horror films, like, you know, it's perfect for you. There's so many illusions. It's just a load of good fun. Hard to beat. And that is the essence of Galotians, which is what we Inverclyde folk call Halloween. All Hallows Eve. Troops, another good Halloween episode, I think. Aye, aye, aye. it's good to keep yeah. these things going. Yep, another one. Uh, right after the Fitler special this year as well. The the liturgical calendar of Dynamite and Eddie has all been squeezed together <laughs> in these yes. past couple of months. It's little understood, but um, <laughs> we, we make do. But aye, Helen, thank you very much for joining us on this spooky season. Of course, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, trick or treat, creep it real. Well, not quite, Andy. We're not at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Helen does, um, on the off chance that we've got one or two listeners in Berlin, um, you want to plug your um, girl house nights? Oh, I get a plug something? Everybody gets a plug. Yeah, okay. You can uh, follow Girl House Cinema on Instagram. You can come to some independent Flinta nights um, for DIY filmmakers in Berlin. There you go. Yeah. And um, being a big movie, he'd gaze a, a random horror movie recommendation for watching. Oh, do you know what? As, as well known from everyone I know, Event Horizon is my favourite horror movie. But recently I watched this one on Shudder called Popcorn and I think it's a hidden gem. I think everyone should watch it. Right, I'm going to put that on my, my fucking watch list on Letterboxd nice nice. as soon as we finish recording. But aye, that brings us to the end of the Halloween episode. Um, we are going to dish out our games for next time. And they'll not keep you in suspense any longer. What I've got for you is 
Andy, you like to make a lot of punch it and Mike Tyson's involvement in punch it. Yeah. Am I right in saying? Is that a fair uh-huh. comment? That's right. Did you know that Sega had a similar thing with another boxer that you've got quite a bit of fondness for? Eric Butterbean Ish. No, I did not know that Butterbean has his own game. No. Butterbean has his own Mega Drive game. It was a competitor for Super Punch Out. They play quite similar, but it's on a Mega Drive, and it's called Tough Man Contest. Right. And that is your game for next time. Uh, I'm going to game a comic, Jet Set Radio Future, for the Xbox. Uh, a sequel to one of my favourite games of all time, a Dreamcast game. Um, and uh, I never, I never got a chance to play that one as much, Jet Set Radio Future. So it'd be good to hear what you think about it. Yes, I look forward to that one. So I'm going to give Mick a bit of a weird cousin or perhaps misunderstood brother, you could say, to the Final Fantasy series. Um, this is a saga game and it is Romancing Saga 3 on the SNES. McCormick, you know, me and you both have a bit of a love for this strange man who made Final Fantasy 2 and the Final Fantasy Legend, which we played through in the Gorbals. So I am... I am really looking forward to getting stuck into Romance and Saga 3. It's um, a bit of a biography of this fella. <laughs> I think so. But aye, that, that brings us to the end of the Galotion special here. All it leaves for me to say is, up the workers. Andy, what was that thing you said before? Uh, when fighting monsters, make sure you yourself don't become a monster. Keep it real. <laughs> Hardcore to the mega. I've, I've changed it. I'm not doing proper with that anymore. Sorry. And Helen closes it. Sus or the sours. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. Yeah.